Rick Howard, thank you so much for joining us on the Dark Mode podcast. Pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. We are, firstly, I just want to mention congratulations to you, Cyberwire and N2K Networks for hitting a huge milestone literally just this morning, 70 million downloads across the network. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We're very pleased and very proud of that number. You know, we're just a little startup company doing a bunch of podcasts and who knew we could get that many downloads. Fantastic. Little startup podcast with 70 million downloads. I don't know if you can say that anymore. Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Hit we the big leagues. Like we're little, okay? We still feel that one. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, so, Rick, you're the Chief Security Officer at N2K Networks, you know, champion yep. of the Cyber Threat Alliance, former CISO at Palo Alto Networks, former leader of the U.S. Army's Computer Emergency Response Team, and the admiration of the entire global cybersecurity community and a big personal thank you for recently being the author of the Cybersecurity First Principles book, a reboot of strategy and tactics. I'm excited to dive into all of those. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry you had to read all that, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Ben passed me the intro. He's like, there's too many syllables for me. So (laughs) big words in that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to getting your perspective on a few things, Rick, but I would love to firstly just dive deep into the creation, the evangelizing of cybersecurity first principles. I feel like from what I've read and what I've known of you, and there's a personal relationship as well through Sean Duca, mm-hmm. who's a CISO, CISO Palo Networks here more regionally. He actually gifted me the book after the, the RSA conference just this year in 2023. So um, I personally found it to be the most comprehensive, well thought out, easy distillation of quite a complex topic in cybersecurity, which seems to just be getting more and more confusing these days. But I was a oh. really big fan. So thank you as well for putting that together. Thanks for saying all that. I mean, uh, it does my heart good to, you know, hear someone likes it besides my mom. Okay. <laughs> and, and Sean, Sean's had to hear me talk about this. I had, I've been thinking about cybersecurity first principles for geez, over a decade, you know, and he and I had many conversations about it. What was fortunate though, when I came to work for N2K, um, you know, I'm, I do my own podcast these days and my process is I write an essay about the topic first before I figure out what we're going to do on the show. And after about two years of that, I said, oh my goodness, I have enough for a book, <laughs> right? So that's how I, so I feel very fortunate that I got that opportunity to put it all down on paper. Yeah, it was amazing. I would like to, I mean, first principles is something that is near and dear to our hearts, talking about how, what the governing foundational principle is. Before we kick into the cybersecurity domain, could you just explain for the audience where the, where the concept of first principles have, has come from? Well, I first heard about it listening to a news story about Whitehead and Russell. These are two British mathematicians who back in the early 1900s realized that there was a problem in the math community because they get, the two different mathematicians could use the same set of rules uh, to solve a problem, but come up with two completely different answers two completely correct answers based on the rules. So they decided to go back and rewrite the rules of math from the ground up, starting with first principles. And the idea of that is it took them 80 pages to prove that one plus one equals two. I mean, that's, that's going back to the very beginning, right? And in a really famous quote they have in the book, Whitehead says, this might be useful in the future or something like that. And, you know, And you all thought that math nerds weren't funny, right? So that's when I first started hearing about first principles. And I started to think that 
the cybersecurity uh, industry, we have our own problem that uh, very similar to what Whitehead and Russell were trying to solve, right? Meaning, meaning we're all using the same sets of best practices and coming up with different results. And it occurred to me that we hadn't reached or we haven't agreed to what the absolute cybersecurity first principle is. So this goes way back in the early days too. First principles isn't something that Whitehead and Russell came up with, right? Uh, you know, Euclid and uh, Aristotle and Descartes, they all were trying to figure out the essence of life basically. And all of them talked about how they had to get to the beginning of the problem. They couldn't figure out the domain until we all agreed what the absolute essence of the problem is. And what I mean is it is atomic meaning that everything you learn in the problem domain is derived from that absolute first principle. So I started thinking about what would that be in cybersecurity? Ben, you're yet to read the book, aren't you? But I'm I very ha happy to express post it over to you after this episode. Please do. <laughs> I, I, uh, I just keep putting the picture of the cart before the horse here and, and it'd be great to understand why we put the cart before the horse in the first place. Well, I think that's absolutely correct, right? I went back and looked at all the early papers from the 70s and 80s, right? And some really smart people. I mean, you know, brainiacs in the math and computer, in the early computer science days, they were trying to get their heads around, you know, what cybersecurity was. And they were writing all these papers about it. And lots of ideas emerged. But the two that stuck in the community were things we all are familiar with, right? The first one that popped up that everybody liked was we're going to try to make computers secure by configuring them correctly, right? And there's a famous research paper by Bell and Lapidula who mathematically proved that they can build, that they could design a secure computer. But in the very next paragraph, they say, no one's going to be able to do this because being able to verify the configuration is impossible, right? But we have been trying to do that ever since the 70s, right? And, and how that manifests today is, you know, vulnerability management. We continuously try to patch, you know, our computer systems to keep them up to date. And it's a no-win situation. So that's one big idea that emerged in the early days. The other big idea was the CIA triad, you know, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And everybody just kind of jumped on that and said, oh, well, that's the thing. If you talk to any InfoSec practitioner, they're going to mention the CIA triad somewhere in their InfoSec program. But it can't be that great because if you just look at the headlines every day, you see that we are not stopping bad guys from being successful. So maybe the CIA triad isn't enough, right? And so I wanted to write what I thought was the absolute cybersecurity first principle. That, so that kind of was the impetus to get everything going. So Rick, tell us, what is the absolute cybersecurity first principle? <laughs> well, I know what I think it is, and we can debate what you think it is, right? But I've looked at, I thought about this for years, right? And it has to be very simple, simple enough so that all of us can agree to it so that we can work from there. So here's what I think it is. The absolute cybersecurity first principle is to reduce the probability of material impact to our organization due to some cyber event in some uh, finite time frame in the future, let's say one to five years. And let me unpack that a second. There are three pieces to that. First is we're going to reduce the probability. We're not going to stop everything. We're going to reduce the probability that something is going to happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we're only going to worry about material things. All right. I don't know about you guys, but I've never had infinite resources to protect my environments, right? So why would we spend our resources 
on things that aren't material to the business. So that's number two. And the third one is, is bounded by time, all right? Because if I tell you, are you going to get compromised, say, in the next 100 years? Of course, yes, you will, all right? But the probability of you being compromised in, say, the next three years, that's a significant difference, right? And so it's important to bound our forecasting by some uh, time element that makes sense to your organization. So that's it. What do you think, Gabe? Am I off base here? Or um, what do you like or don't like about that? I really like the definition because it brings it back down to the fundamentals as to what the outcomes are, what the organization aims to achieve and just being time bound, resource bound and what is really critical is also, I feel really important. I would love to know, Rick, how you came to define that because I'm sure it came about perhaps as all of your experience and those essays you were talking about and some of your recent experiences, but was there anything in particular that inspired you to really narrow down into that definition? Yeah, it's my frustration when I would go to boards and present, you know, the security yeah. program to them that I it just didn't feel like I knew what I was doing, right? Uh, in the traditional way that CISOs do this, you know, we use these heat maps, okay? You guys are familiar with heat maps, right? You On the x-axis is all the bad things that could go wrong, possibly go wrong. And on the y-axis is, you know, the the damage of how bad it's going to be if they do go wrong. And so what happens is all the really nasty stuff goes high into the right on this kind of a spreadsheet thing. And if you're really, you know, good at Excel, you can color code it. So the high into the right stuff is red, <laughs> the middle stuff is yellow and the low into the left is green. That's why it's called a heat map. It turns out there are, there are reams of evidence that says that heat maps are bad ways to convey risk to business leaders, right? It's just not good science. Cause even if you say, there's a, it's 90% chance this is going to happen. Then what you think 90% means and what I think 90% means is completely different, right? And so it's just not very good. And the second thing is we never, because we never give the leadership a chance to say, hey, is that okay? Is that risk? Am I going to tolerate that risk? We never give them that chance. I would go into board meetings and circle that stuff high into the right and say, this is really scary. Give me a gazillion dollars to fix it. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't, right? But it's just a really bad way to convey uh, risk to the business leaders. And so I've been on this quest for the last decade to figure out how do we calculate cybersecurity risk? And there's, you know, lots of books out there. I don't know if you've read any of them, but, you know, some of the more famous ones are to measure everything in cybersecurity. It's a great book. Are you familiar with the FAIR methodology, okay, from Jack Jones and Jack Freund, people follow those all the time. And I love those books. They are great primers on how to think about probability in the cybersecurity domain. But all those authors are friends of mine, right? And I've read all those books cover to cover, but I kept waiting for the chapter at the end of the book that said, here's how you do it in the real world, okay? And those chapters don't exist because it's still too hard. They, we make it too hard in the cybersecurity industry. So in this book, I decided I was going to write that chapter myself, how to make something practical in terms of risk forecasting. So I want to, I want to give you, I want to preface this with another book that I recommend for everybody to read as you are getting used to, you're priming yourself for uh, calculating risk. The book's called uh, Super Forecasting by Dr. Tetlock. You guys, have you guys heard of that before? No. Um, right. I just saw it in um, Cybersecurity First Principles, Rick. I think you mentioned yeah. super forecasting and the risk forecasting section. 
is the thing that changed my mind that this is possible, right? And, and here's the story. Dr. Tetlock is the author, right? And he's this curmudgeon, okay? He's, you know, he doesn't like anything, right? And, uh, and you know, in the early 2000s, he would watch the old news programs on TV, you know, in the, like CNN and Fox and, and all the others, right? And they would bring these pundits on to discuss some topic. And they would bring these guys on who, you know, they, they guessed something correct once in their life, but they've been wrong ever since, right? And so he would just shake his fist at the TV and say, what are you guys doing? I always thought that there should be a Chiron at the bottom of the screen that says, you know, this guy's one for 37, maybe not pay attention to what he's talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Dr. Tedlock works for IARPA here in the United States, right? It's the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency. And he concoct an experiment with three test groups. And the first group is the academic community. The second group is the intelligence community. And the third group is a, a group I call the geezers on the go. These are just people, you know, older folks that have time to solve problems. And he gave them 500 really difficult forecasting questions like, Will the president of Syria get assassinated in the next five years, right? Something like that, you know, impossible things to forecast. And then he would grade them over time. And the rules were the forecasters could change their view of it as new evidence came in, but they would get graded in how accurate they were and how precise. And I think I buried the lead here, but the, the geezers on the go beat the other two groups by 60% in their forecasting, right? 60%. And what's amazing, though, there was another group inside the geezers on the go that beat that group by another 60%, and those are the super forecasters, right? And so what I'm saying is that book convinced me that it was possible to forecast really hard things like cybersecurity risk. And these super forecasters, they're not geniuses. They're not, you know, uh, they're not uh, Professor X and the X-Men. You know, they're not Einstein's. They're just kind of smart people that likes to solve problems and they follow a very particular methodology that Dr. Tetlock outlined, but it's something that any CISO can learn. Even I could figure it out. Right. So it convinced me that it was possible to solve these problems. So let me ask you this, Ben, why do you think we struggle with forecasting risk in the cybersecurity industry? What do you think the problem is? That, I think that's the question right there. We haven't defined what the problem is. <laughs> I think you're right about that. Right. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Why we're, why it's so difficult to forecast for? Yeah, yeah. I just I, it feels like there's this we're in this realm of information overload where it's like where do you start? How do you articulate yeah. it? How do you elevate it up to business risk and therefore what models to use? Just it seems like it's all we're sort of waving through mud a little bit. That that's the sense that I get personally. And I've experienced all that in my career, and I've talked to a bunch of CISOs about this. And when we hear probability, we think that it has to be extremely precise. At least that's what I heard in the last 10 years, you know. So that means that we have to go count everything, and we have to know exactly what's going on in our network before we can make any decisions. And the big epiphany on my part while writing this book is that's not exactly true, right? It doesn't have to be that precise. It has to be precise enough to make resource decisions with for our InfoSec program, right? The super forecasters in Dr. Tetlock's book, they follow this, the ideas from this famous physicist called Enrico Fermi. You guys familiar with this guy? He was- I'm not personally. No, yeah, me neither. He's not, you know, not a friend of mine. We don't hang out on the weekends. No, he was, 
He worked on the Los Alamos project during World War II, one of the big physicists there to help build the atomic bomb. And he was famous for making these back-of-the-envelope calculations to estimate what the answers to really complicated math problems was. And he didn't do any high-order math. He just he said, well, what about this and this? And put these three things together, and the answer should be about this. And he was so right so many times that he became famous for this. And later in his life, when he was teaching college, he would give his students these weird problems like how many inches of pizza were consumed Friday night, you know, on the University of Maryland or something like that. And he wouldn't let them look anything up. They had to estimate it. And that's what, the, that's what we should be thinking about as CISOs. We can estimate to come up with a decent enough forecast to make some decisions with. And let me give you one more example. I was, we were doing the forecast for N2K about two years ago. And, you know, we did, I got our initial estimate and I went to the CEO and I said, well, we think it's about a 15% chance that we will be materially impacted by some, say, ransomware attack in the next three years. And what I want to do, boss, CEO, is spend the next year and really collect all the data, right? And spend and get down and dive deep and collect all the things. And then we'll really know what that forecast is. And he asked me, well, Rick, what do you think the difference is going to be between the deep dive and what you have right now? What's the, how many points is it going to be off? And I said, hmm, maybe two or three, maybe five. He said, well, I don't need us to do, spend all that time figuring that out, right? Why don't we just go with what you have now and we can make the decision with it? I said, oh, what an epiphany that is, right? So, yeah. Great. We, yeah. So, that fantastic. Uh, that's, what's, that's what got me going on this whole idea. Yeah, amazing. A long explanation. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> ben, what do you think about the the initial statement around reducing the probability of material impact? I I really enjoy all three of those principles, but reducing the probability is something that I I don't. And that was a epiphany moment for me, Rick, having not read the book yet. In that, I think too many people look at probability as a quantified, very defined statement. It has to be a precise number. Whereas probability by definition is, is, is a rough estimate really. Exactly. Uh, and therefore I think reducing the probability with the key phrase being probability is super important for organizations moving forward. I love the material protection as well. I, I don't think that gets enough airtime uh, across organizations. There seems to be a lot of uh, philosophical ideas of what we need to protect rather than focusing on the material protection of the organization at hand. I think that's right. Uh, I used to be one of those guys, you know, I'd run around whenever the new exploit happened and with my, I'd run around with my hair on fire going, oh my God, the world's going to come to an end. And you know what? The world never came to an end. Okay. And so maybe, maybe we just focus on the really important things and focus our resources there. That's kind of the, the idea. Well, it's great that you had even that personal example, Rick, at N2K, where it was like, okay, well, let's move forward now with that information yeah. and that intelligence and let's progress things. You know, instead of it's not reactive, it's proactive now. We've got enough evidence, information, forecasting to make those informed decisions and we can keep moving forward with business operations. So, yeah, it's just really highlights the crux of it. I think the, the other piece of adjustment as well, Rick, from that point, sorry to cut you off there, is, you know, once the, the CEO is giving you the ability just to run with the numbers you've got based on your probability estimation, mm -hmm. you're able then to test and adjust as you implement process procedures, et cetera, as you roll through rather than condensing or co committing to a 12 month 
data collection timeframe, right. which a lot of CISOs do. And I know that as soon as a CISO gets into an organization as a new CISO overall, their first priority is to understand the environment, collect that data to be able to then make data-driven decisions. But if you can understand the environment, the organization as a whole, make a, 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 a educated probability assessment on yeah. the probability of an attack, you're then able to, to test and adjust on the fly. But it just makes so much sense to me. And I can't believe I haven't thought of that before. <laughs> Well, I think that what I'd like to convey to InfoSec practitioners is that probability is way more than counting the odds like in a dice throw, right? Especially for really complex problems. It's really a measure of uncertainty, okay? And, and it's hard to get your head around that, right? And, but once you do, then, things be, then you can start making some decisions with. And, and I, I make it sound like it's just kind of this back-of-the-envelope math calculations. It's really based on some very formal math procedures that we don't have to do, by the way. We don't have to follow a very formal math, uh, mathematical model. I'm just telling you the whole idea is based on Bayes' algorithm, all right? And Bayes is this guy from the 1600s um, that invented this model, all right? And it's essentially, you start with an initial estimate with some experts like us, We can, three of us can get together and say, we think it's 20% chance that the N2K will get material impact. Okay, our, our opinions are valid because we're all experts. And then over time, we look at new evidence as it comes in, okay? So for example, oh, we see you know, Wicked Spider runs a campaign specifically going after podcast companies. Oh, well, that means I need to adjust my forecast because now I, there's a more likely chance that I'm gonna get hit by somebody, right? So, and you just, continuously reevaluate the evidence and, and adjust your forecast up or down, okay, based on the evidence coming in. And that's how the super forecasters did it in the Tetlock uh, study, right? And that's how they got so good at this. And they made mistakes, right? But over time, they were better than all the other forecasters out there. Rick, we almost started with how the book was laid out really from that first principle, then you go into the strategies, which mm -hmm. is... From left to right, really, zero trust, in, intrusion, kill chain prevention, resilience, and then risk forecasting. We seem to have gone straight into the risk forecasting section because it seems like based on the probability and the like, I found it really interesting that just, again, that sort of mind map overarchingly. Were there, do you feel like those four sort of strategies in particular, the ones that are the most pertinent today, the most viable, seeing them implemented a lot more than others, is that sort well, of why you landed on those strategies in particular? I back up a little bit here, right? Because first, I think a lot of us in the InfoSec world don't really understand the difference between strategy and tactic, All right? So let me tell you what I think that means. Strategy is the what we want to do, okay? So here's the, we think we should have zero trust. So that's the thing we're going to try to implement. And then the tactics are all the things that we do as a, pro, as a group to implement and pursue that goal. And when I talk to a lot of CISOs, they, most of them have a lot of tactics that they pursue, vulnerability management, antivirus deployment, you know, firewalls. These are just, these are tactics with no real goal in mind. So they have no way to measure if they are succeeding or not, right? And I think it's very important to distinguish between the, what we want to do and then the, how we're going to do it. And yeah. so if you agree with me about the absolute cybersecurity first principle, you start thinking about, okay, what strategies are the follow-ons? If we all agree that we're trying to reduce the probability of material impact, what can you do 
as an organization? Well, what immediately comes to mind is kind of a zero trust strategy, meaning we're going to try to reduce the attack surface as much as possible. We're going to make sure that you only have access to the things you have ac- you should have access to and nothing else. And what I mean by that, that's employees, that's contractors, that's devices, that's commercial software that we buy, that's software that we write ourselves, and it's also all the open source objects, code objects that we import when we write our own code. So we need, so that's one strategy we can do is just reduce the attack server so we're not as vulnerable to the outside world. But another strategy we might consider is actually just trying to deploy detection and prevention controls for known adversary activity. All right. And so you're all familiar with the MITRE attack framework. As an example, that is a database of about 150 nation state adversary campaigns across the intrusion kill chain. Right. And in, in, they track tactics, techniques, and procedures. So in this strategy, it makes sense that we would do, we would deploy every prevention control possible for every known adversary campaign so that, you know, even if the bad guy comes up with something new, they still will be defeated because we have all these, we have multiple prevention controls in line for them, right? So that'd be another strategy you might deploy. And both of those are preventative. Right, zero trust is a preventative measure. Intrusion kill chain prevention is a preventative measure. Another strategy you might follow is resilience. Right, meaning we're not going to we're not going to be we're going to assume we're not going to be successful stopping the next ransomware campaign against us. What we're going to spend our resources on is surviving it. Right, we're going to make sure that our backups are good, that we can restore at the moment's notice that anything that some ransomware guy or some bad guy activity is gonna do, it won't matter because we can recover quickly. And that's a different strategy altogether. The fourth one we, you talked about, Gabe, was the we have to be able to do risk forecasting so we can measure how good we are at all this. And I will add two more on here. One is automation that I talked about in the book as a strategy, because that'll make it, that'll reduce the probability because we can just be more agile, more agile than the adversary. The one that came up after we published the book that we haven't talked about though, is workforce development. And what I mean by that, I can't believe I forgot about this when I was writing the book, right? Is the most important aspect to any InfoSec program are the experts that you have on your team. So if you decide that you're gonna deploy a zero trust strategy and you don't have anybody on your team, that can do zero trust or understands it or even understands what that means, that means you have to train them to do that. And I don't know, what do you guys think about that? Well, it seems like the ubiquitous layoff for me and very cyclical by that same token too, because that informs everything as to the security program, where the expertise is, how it's deployed, who operates it. Yeah, absolutely. Something that we speak about oftentimes as well. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, yeah, I've got a bit of background noise, apologies, but um, I totally agree. I think there is, uh, and, and I think there's value in outsourcing that if you don't have it mm-hmm. and understanding what your strategies are, the tactics you have, and if it's zero trust and you don't have that within your team, identify that, and then you can source it from a third party, like an MSSP, for instance. Yeah. I think that's a great use case for that is to understand that and then, <clears throat> forgive me, 
if there is a gap in that, outsource. That, that's, that's why these, these places exist to create that ecosystem to, to really round out what, you, what you're talking to there. Also, I loved what you said, Rick, just quickly, is the detection and response for known threat TTPs. Mm. It goes back to what I said earlier, is there's too much philosophical, philosophication, if that's even a word, <laughs> the philosophy is behind some of what people are trying to achieve instead of looking at what's been found, what's in front of them, using that as a playbook and then creating playbooks as, as a result of that. I have a real so, pet peeve about that. I can't, you know, because we like to talk about technical things. We like to talk about preventing malware or preventing the exploit or preventing the vulnerability from being useful. That's the wrong level. We should be trying to prevent adversaries from being successful, right? And we adjust your mindset away from that. That's the intrusion kill chain prevention methodology. Because we know in the minor attack framework, they tracked 150 known adversary campaigns, okay? So out, the, out of the box, if you don't have prevention controls for those 150, you're behind, okay? You're, and we, it isn't like it's not known. It isn't like it's hard to find out. Go read the database, right? So it's not that difficult. My criticism of the uh, MITRE ATT&CK framework is they only cover mostly nation-state activity, right? There's no crime groups in there. There's about five or six thin groups, they call them, okay? So what we really need is someone to build the equivalent MITRE ATT&CK framework for cybercrime. And if you talk to Microsoft or you talk to the FBI, they think there's about 100 active adversary campaigns that do cybercrime. So combined, combined with the MITRE ATT&CK framework, they have 150 nation-state campaigns. We're talking about, I don't know, round up, about 500 active campaigns on the internet on any given day. That's not that many. Right. Uh, we could track that in a spreadsheet if we wanted to. I don't recommend it, but you could. Right. And uh, many of us fail to deploy even the most rudimentary controls for known adversary activity. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy that there's not just that overarching threat wiki for all of the actors I know. and the motivations. I've, I've talked to all the MITRE guys. I love those guys, right? And, but and I said, where's the crime stuff? He goes, well, we, we don't have enough resources. Oh my God, all right, so someone needs to do it, right? So open source it, yeah, get the community yeah. involved. <laughs> I had this crazy idea about workforce development though. I wanna know what you guys think about it. Have you ever watched the movie Moneyball? Yes, Brad Pitt classic. Yeah, love Brad Pitt, okay, love it, right? And it's a Moneyball is about a U.S. Major League Baseball team called the Oakland A's, and their their uh, payroll uh, was about forty five million dollars back in two thousand two. Right, that's how, the money they were going to use to buy baseball players to play in this league. Their nemesis, the New York Yankees, their payroll is one hundred sixty five million dollars, so they couldn't compete. And for a hundred years, Major League Baseball in the United States. The way we found players was scouts would go out and watch college teams and watch other players, and they would evaluate if a player was good. Like he was, he looked, he looked good. He was tall. He had a good swing. He had a strayer jaw. And even in the movie, they mentioned, and he has a good looking girlfriend. That'd be a one criteria they would use to pick a baseball player, right? So Brad Pitt plays the Oakland A's manager, Billy Bean, in real life. And Billy Bean decides to field a baseball team based on first principles, by the way, right? And he decides the first principle of baseball is on-base percentage, okay? And I, I'm not a baseball guy, all right? I don't know much about baseball, but that's not hitting home runs. 
That's not being a good fielder. That's basically getting on base any way you can. And he could he would take any player who got on base better than anybody else. And by the way, they were cheap, okay, because they weren't superstars. And I think that's the problem we have in cybersecurity. When we train people, we normally focus on the individual. And we try to hire the individual that has, you know, 25 years experience and 17 certs. And we want to pay them a buck fifty an hour. No wonder we can't fill the three point five million uh, personnel gap that we've been talking about for a decade, right? So my idea here is that we should have Moneyball for cybersecurity workforce development. Instead of trying to train individuals to get the next cert, we should be evaluating our team. And if we are pursuing the zero trust strategy. We should evaluate the team on how good we are at implementing some of the tactics that I outline in the book and then train the team to get better at that. And what I think that means is that we can hire newbies coming out of college. We could hire transitioning people out of government jobs, all right, because they don't have 37 certs, okay, but they might have the aptitude and I can train them on the two or three things I need them to be smart about and have a better team. buying any of this because that's what i think the idea is <laughs> yeah i know that ben wrote down a buck 50 because uh s- sign you up pay ben <laughs> yeah that's always in my bank account so i understand that <laughs> no the, i think, I think we're actually products of that game the, you know we come straight from military into the corporate world and and we've been able to develop those skill sets and through the positions that we've had and gone through the ranks we've been able to do our own personal development through yeah. workforce development. So I, I think it's absolutely necessary and it's a great shot. So are you saying you missed that in the book, Rick? I didn't, yeah, I didn't think about it till afterwards, which is well, just nuts. Okay. So, you know, addition to whenever I get around to it, I do think it is a first principle strategy that should have been in there. Okay. And I'm kind of talking about it now. And you guys are prior military, right? Both of you came from the military. You know, the military does team training, right? We focus. You know, we, sure, the military people have to fire a rifle and we have to be fit and, you know, we have to know how to work our weapon systems. Yes. But then we train as squads. Then we train as platoons. Then we train as battalions. And that's built into it. In the cybersecurity commercial world, we don't do that. We send individuals to training and we stop. All right. The, the, I guess you could say if you do a purple team exercise, then that's a team training. But those are far and few between, I think. And I think we could do be a lot more comprehensive. <laughs> mic drop. Ben's dropping the mic. <laughs> oh, I just wonder what Alex, or were you raising your hand to ask a was, question? I didn't know. Uh, you mentioned that. I, it just hit me with the first principle, too, in the military, in the Australian military anyway. I'm sure it's the same across the globe is everyone, regardless of their role in the military, is a soldier first. You're trained yeah. to be an infantry soldier first as a first principle for military. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you specialize. So, you know, there's, there's a good tie back there too. Exactly right. Yeah, it all stacks on itself as well. And then I just think the power of the collective and, you know, the, the team moving in harmony and working towards that common outcome and goal is, has to always be underscored. And even just recently in the last week, in some of our HR discussions, talking about learning agility as well. So, you know, outside of IQ or EQ, it's like, what is the propensity for the team? to have all the individual, to have the learning agility, because particularly in cybersecurity and cybersecurity technology and cybersecurity adversarial actions and those sort of things, 
it's, it's always in the state of flux. There's always new things to learn and to be agile enough to understand those and move forward is absolutely critical. And what it comes down to what you're saying. Right? I, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right, Gabe, because, you know, um, I need someone who to solve problems, who can solve problems on their own, not, uh, I'm not going to walk them through it. So I don't know about you guys, but when I hire people, you walk them through the job description to see if they're qualified. But I always have one question I ask at the end, okay, to see if they have the aptitude for it. And the, here's my question. You guys, let me know if you, you like this or not. What are you running at your house, right? Because if you're not running a Linux box that you built yourself, you're not smart enough to be on my team. And it's not that you have to know Linux. It's just that you were you had the aptitude to learn something new on the, your own, solved all those problems, because I'm going to give them these dripping bags of problems to solve for me because I don't know how to solve them, right? And I expect them to do it on their own because I, I don't know how to do it. So that aptitude, Love that. well, that's yeah, what we're trying to that's find. Really cool. Yeah, yeah well, that's a good indication as well as to yeah. you know, problem-solving skills, critical thinking, learning agility. We've had some pretty interesting examples in the former life of the team that we were leading, was, which was like just the examples from the technical team as to what was being run at home or like the latest engagements, widgets, all these demos or just like next level things. And it's like, okay, we've got a very strong technical outfit here. Yeah. And frankly, I'm quite, I'm a little suspect of people that aren't playing, you know, uh, video games on their computers. I'm just saying, okay, if you're not playing Fortnite, I'm just, you know, I'm a little suspect. <laughs> Zero trust. Zero trust. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's such Pretty an good. underutilized piece to the hiring strategy to build that, that accurate workforce is learning agility. It's something yeah. that, that we look for in, in my role at Dragos is, is the ability to learn and how agile you are at picking up new technology, new process, especially in the OT markets and different space. So transitioning, you need to have that high learning agility, but how to quantify that is always difficult. So I like that question, Rick, because it gives you an understanding of whether someone is a willing to learn and two has the uh, the in internal fortitude to be able to take that and run with it in their personal space yeah and I, I i think there are some assessment tools we can use to find that too i mean you can figure it out through having a discussion with the individuals but i think there's things we can do uh you know tests we can give our employees that help us identify those people who are better at this than others more to follow on that i think just as an extension of this topic as well, Rick, I'd be keen to know if you had any perspective or advice for potentially those organizations or hiring managers that are looking to really uplift the capability across the workforce, probably regionalized as well across different pockets of the globe. But w would you say anything in particular as to what we should be looking to implement to build workforce capability, to bring transitioning people in, you know, the overarching program as it relates to that for the cyber function? Yeah, I have a couple ideas that we just are not very good at this, uh, you know, and we've been bad about this for a while, but let's just talk in terms of diversity for a second. You know, we're, we've been saying for over a decade that we have this gap in employee skill sets that we need to fill. I think it's, we said before, 3.5 million jobs open right now, right? And But we keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting it to be solved, and that's not going to work, right? And and that we talked about also the definition of insanity. <laughs> that is, that's it, right? Verbatim, um, yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and we still have these huge, horrible participation uh, stats for women and, and minorities, which is just nuts to me. Here we have a 3.5 million person gap, and we are only looking at half the population. That's just stupid. All right. So, and by the way, 
this is a man problem. Right? Men are the hiring managers. They're the ones not seeking the minorities and females for these jobs, and that's on them. So when they're looking, here's my advice to everybody that's out there. If they're looking for a, to fill a new position, if the resumes they have on their desk is not at least half full with women and minorities, they need to kick all that back to the HR team and say, you need to do better. You need to do way better than that, right? And this only gets solved by the hiring managers at this point. Now, I, I'm not saying it's also an HR problem, okay, because we've insisted from what I was telling you before, that every potential employee has 25 years experience. And I'm telling you, we don't need that. We need you to identify the people with the aptitude so that I can train them, right? And the pushback I get back with those ideas is, well, I'm gonna train them and then they're gonna go work for Drago, so it's gonna pay them a bazillion dollars to come work for them, right? I'm saying that's okay, because we're just gonna hire the next newbie in, Right, and it's not going to cost us an arm and a leg. So I think we can close the gap better that way, if we are just cognizant of what we were doing in our hiring practices. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a bit more systematic, and yeah, it's just yeah. Like, can we start with actually just introducing these things and looking to get those better outcomes, as opposed to oh, but if we put the effort into training them, then they're going to leave. But it's like, well, if you don't put the effort into training them, you're never going to get that get the yeah. workforce outcome. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Yeah, it's ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. And if you have a system, I, if, if workforce development is a strategy that you are pursuing and you're throwing resources at that, then you're going to have a bunch of people in the bullpen warming up as new, as people leave, they're going to come in and fill behind them. Right. And you all know, you guys have been doing this a long time. Uh, you have superstars in your organization and you always worry when they leave because oh, who's going to do that job. The place doesn't collapse when the superstars leave. It, they just don't. Someone else fills the gap, right? So, totally. uh, yeah. It, it, it makes my eyes bleed that we're still having this conversation. In I know. Right. <laughs> it's like, why? And we just should gonna... have solved this by now. This Seriously. is not like it's rocket science. Okay. Jeez. <laughs> I know. It's going to bridge it, the it's... gap into action. Yeah, exactly. the action. We're still in strategy and tactic. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Rick, was there anything else you wanted to cover off before we wrap up? I would like, uh, just a, mostly when cybersecurity people read about all these, you know, best practices, it's more like a checklist. You know, you got to do all of them or none of them or something in between. That's not what I'm talking about with this first principles book. What I'm telling you is there are, there's an absolute cybersecurity first principle that we can debate. But once we agree to that, there are a number of strategies and tactics that you can follow. You don't have to do them all. What you're looking for is a set of strategies and tactics that will have the greatest impact on your organization. So once you decide you're going to be a zero trust company or a resilience company, or maybe both of those, you can calculate what the probability is of material impact is and tell your bosses what that is. And they can say, oh, I don't like that. It needs to be a lot smaller than that, All right? So then you're going to go back to the drawing board and say, what strategies can make it even more smaller than what I just did? So it is not, please do all of these. It's not a checklist. It is do the things that are going to be most impactful to your organization. And it's different for everybody, okay? Like, you know, in my last job, what we did to Palo Alto Networks, you know, we had lots of resources. We could spend lots of money to do a bunch of things, All right? We did. What I'm doing at N2K, we're a startup, you know, I'm the security team. 
and I'm not allowed to touch anything because I'll break it, right? So we have no resources for cybersecurity. My strategy at N2K is resilience because uh, that's all I got. And so it's different based on culture, based on size, based on vertical, based on all that. So pick the ones, pick the strategies and tactics that will work best for your environment. Very nuanced and tailored to the organization. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Rick, you just, you just uh, triggered me with the word there. I know that we're trying to wrap up, but I just, I'd be really keen on your definition of, of resilience. It's a really great question, right? Because in fact, in the super forecasting book, uh, Tetlock asked one of his colleagues, uh, the guy that wrote the Black Swan book, his name is Talib, right? You guys are familiar with the Black Swan idea, right? Yeah. It's a thing that will probably never happen. But if it does, it's a catastrophe, right? And the example he gives in the book is, what should we do about the possibility of a meteor hitting the earth? If we want to sustain human life, what can you do? The prevention strategy is to send missiles up and, you know, blow it in blow it into smaller pieces or knock it off course. But the resilience strategy is to put man, put people on Mars. So even if the earth gets hit, the humans are going to be resilient and they're still going to live. Right. And so in my mind, resilience is I'm going to survive the attack and I'm going to be so good at restoring whatever the bad guys damage that our customers won't even notice that we were down. That's the goal, right? And some big organizations are really good at this. You know, the cloud providers like Amazon and Google and Microsoft, they're so big. You know their systems are failing all the time because they have to, right? But you never notice because they built this resilient system that even when they fail, it still operates the way it should, all right? And so we should all, if, that, if resilience is your strategy, that's what you should be pursuing to be able to, survive some catastrophic thing and nobody will notice. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I just you were playing that one over, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> I wish, I wish I was plastered well, writing because I would have written that whole thing less. <laughs> Too good. Well, thanks for your time, Rick. Really appreciate your insights and perspectives. Big fan of the book. Stay tuned for the review. And for those listening, we'll also link in where you can find the book across all of the favorite platforms and domains. And we'll also, I'm keen to post that mind map as well. I thought that was like really, really handy. Oh, very, excellent. You, well, and thank you for putting up with me today and listening to me ramble on. I, you know, I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for reading the book. And, uh, uh, and I'm just grateful that you guys let me come on and ramble on about this. Thank you. Well, I learned more than I have learned in a long time in the last hour, Rick. So I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next episode of Dark Mode.